sing them. Uh, but I do want to introduce you to four new songs. And they're not new. In fact, they're, they're really, really, really old. Um, nearly 3,000 years old. Isaiah wrote them. And the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. Um, probably prophesied between the 7th and 8th centuries. And... Um, and they are often termed as the servant songs or the songs of the serpent. And so for this Advent season, we're going to um, uh, move away from the book of Acts, which we've been studying. And I want to focus on this, uh, these four songs uh, that Isaiah gives us. Remember, Advent means coming or arrival. And in the season of Advent, what we're, one of the purposes of the season of Advent is... Number one, to focus our attention away from the idols of this age and help to create a longing for the person of Christ. And so that's one of the things that um, we want to do. So I'm going to introduce these four songs. The first song, then, is called, we're going to title it. I don't know what Isaiah titled it. Um, he just gave us the, the song. He didn't give us titles. Um, the Song of Justice, we'll look at that today in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. We're gonna, the, the next so song that we'll learn next week is the Song of Mission, and that comes from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. The third song that we're going to learn is the Song of Faithfulness, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. And then finally, the Song of Suffering. Many of you may be familiar with this song, Isaiah chapter 52, 12 through 53. 13, perhaps the most famous of all of Isaiah's songs. So that's where we're going to go. Today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Now one of the things that I find interesting about songs, you may hear a song that you really like and you enjoy it, but when you learn the backstory of the song, when you learn um, what it was that prompted the song, you tend to appreciate it even more. So... I want to give you a little bit of the backstory. For a good example is um, you all know it is well with my soul, and many of you know the backstory. When you understand the tragedy that is in the background of what what prompted the writing of that song, it is well with my soul. It makes you appreciate and love it even more. So sometimes you hear a song on the radio, or you have a favorite song, and you learn. What is it that prompted that song? What caused the author to write it? It helps you to appreciate it even more. And so today, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory. How did we get to these four songs? Well, let me give you a quick review. First of all, if you were to read the book of Isaiah in one setting, if you were to read the book of Isaiah in, in, in one setting, you would notice that there is a very, very uh, distinct break after Isaiah chapter 39, you, when you got to Isaiah 40, you would notice something drastic has changed. And so, in Isaiah chapter 1 through, chapters 1 through 39, it is Isaiah's call to repentance. It is a call to repent from serving other gods. Unfortunately, Israel did not heed that call. That was kind of prior to the exile, prior to the people of Israel being exiled to Babylon. And then when we get to chapters 40 through 66, we see a definite shift. And this is a, and what we begin to see is a portrait. 
begins to form of God's purpose in the world, and we begin to see that that purpose hinges on a person that Isaiah identifies as the prophet or as the servant. Look at just look at how Isaiah chapter forty begins. Just I was reading it this morning, and it was. It was interesting. So you have Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 and you have a lot of judgment, a lot of call to repentance, a lot of um, challenges there. And then Isaiah chapter 40 begins with comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, um, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, a highway for our God. And it goes on, and the voice says, what shall I cry? And I say, what shall I cry? And the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we see this very distinct shift away from um, this call to repentance to a call Comfort my people. Your judgment has ended and I'm going to bring about my purposes and my purposes are going to center around an individual called the servant. Well then, that leads us to our next very important question and that would be, who is the servant? If God's purposes of, uh, in, in the world revolve around a servant, this servant, and Isaiah writes four songs about this servant, we should ask ourselves, who is this servant? Well, that's um, really a very easy question to answer, and yet at the same time, it's a very difficult question to answer. Let me give you the easy answer first. The easy answer is easy because Isaiah tells us who the servant is. The servant's Israel. Done. In fact, he says, Israel, my servant. So, no need to discuss any further Isaiah says it is Israel. That's the easy answer. But there's a problem. And the problem is this. Israel fails in fulfilling the task of the servant. She is deaf, blind, and in need of forgiveness herself. And in fact, it's very interesting, in Isaiah, the servant is called to call Israel back to God. So if Israel's a servant, is Israel calling Israel back to God? It seems there's not so clear anymore. We began through a careful reading of Isaiah's servant song that when we read carefully, we see that an individual starts to take shape, that, um, that it's an individual who begins to take up this role as the servant. We begin to transition away from the nation as the servant and towards an individual. And some of the, uh, one of the Jewish Targums identify Jesus as, or the Messiah, as that servant. And in fact, we see the New Testament writers frequently referring to Jesus as the servant of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. In fact, we see that Jesus is the ideal servant. He is the true Israel. So the New Testament authors ascribe the servant songs to Jesus. So the question is, who is the servant? We find fulfilled in the New Testament, Jesus is the servant of Isaiah's servant songs. So with that as our background, let's go ahead. Um, let me just give you a preview of where I hope to go today, and then we'll look at our text. 
what's going to happen today is we're going to be introduced to the servant. God is going to introduce us. Since the songs are about the servant, God is going to introduce us to the servant and tell us a little bit about him. We're also going to learn a little bit about his task. What is the servant going to do and how is he going to do it? So that's where we hope to go today. And because we have seen that the people have reverted back to idols. They're like a broken record, aren't they? I don't know if I can still use that that image. People don't have records today. and um, No, the record is better. Because the record, you'd get a groove. And the, the needle would skip out of the groove and bounce back in. And you'd keep repeating over and over and over again. I think that's what they do. Is they, they go along and they get in this groove and they try to bounce out of it and back, right back into the groove. They keep repeating their sins over and over and over again. And so the people of God have reverted to idols like a broken record. But in chapter 42, we're going to see God gives us a new song, a song without a groove. Well, that could be taken a couple different ways. A song without a scratch that plays perfectly. So let's go ahead and let's look at Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 4 as our, as our text. And um, listen to God's word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands Wait for his law. We're going to begin here in verse 1 and spend a little bit of time here as God introduces his servant. I love the way this begins. I hope you do too. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Or behold what be. Look, my servant. This stands in contrast. It's, uh, if you go back, and you don't have to turn there, but back in chapter 41, verse 21, it may even be on the same page in your Bible. Um, God challenges Israel. And he's saying, set forth your eye. You've returned to idols. Set them forth. Let's see what they can do. There's kind of this trial scene, maybe this showdown, if you will. You bring forth your idols. Let's see what they can do. In fact, this is what he says. He says, set forth your case, the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, that is the idols, and tell, let them tell us what's going to happen. Let your idols speak. Let them declare what's going to happen in the future. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know the outcome of things. Let them declare to us what's going to happen. You, Israel, bring forth your idols. Let them tell us what's going to happen. You bring forth the best that you've got. And then God says, Behold, my servant. Here's the contrast. Behold, you bring forth your idols, I'll bring forth my servant. Behold, my servant. Present your case. Let your idols do something. Let them tell you what's going to happen in the future. I'll bring forth my servant. This is my solution. You've tried your own solutions. Now I'm going to bring forth my solution. So look, behold my servant. And we should note, my servant. My servant. 
He belongs to Yahweh and has a close relationship with Yahweh. He does what the Father wills and he does not seek his own agenda. Not my will, but thine be done, is what Jesus said. I only do what I see the Father doing. This is my servant. And he is the one that I uphold. In other words, the servant acts in the strength of the Father. He does not seek his own agenda. My servant, whom I uphold. Basically, God is saying, he's mine. No power can overcome him. In fact, how can he not succeed in his task? How can he not bring forth the justice that um, will be his task? He is, behold, my servant. He belongs to me. He has a close and intimate relationship with me. And I uphold him. I strengthen him. I empower him. I give him. I guarantee his success. Remember, we're introducing the servant. God is introducing us to the servant that these four songs are going to be about. So we should pay attention to who this, some of the, the characteristics and the qualities of the servant He's my servant. I uphold him. And note this, in whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights. God is satisfied with him. In fact, I'll take it a step further. God's deepest satisfaction is in presenting the servant to Israel and to the world. You might say, he is my continual delight. God takes joy in presenting the servant to the world. In Matthew chapter 3, I know your notes say chapter 2.17, but it is 3.17. You all, as soon as you heard this, and you heard my servant in whom I delight, many of you, your minds rushed to the baptism of Jesus, didn't it? And what happened when Jesus was baptized? A voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the one whom I delight. And we, of course, we remember on the holy mountain, the transfiguration. Once again, we see a voice coming out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Peter remembers this in 2 Peter chapter 1.17. I know I put... 1 Peter, but it's 2 Peter. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him, the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God finds his deepest satisfaction in presenting to the world his servant. On Christmas morning, we celebrate the Incarnation the coming of Christ into the world. This is God saying, here I present to you the one in whom I am pleased, the one whom I delight in. He is my servant, the one I will uphold, and I am satisfied in him. We should note that not only is God satisfied in the servant, but God fills the servant with his spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. This will be the means by which Yahweh will sustain him. The spirit of God 
will be the power of the servant. By the, and by the power of God's own spirit, we give certainty to the success of the servant. That is, what the servant is going to do will succeed because Yahweh is upholding him and the Spirit is empowering him. I can't help but note a Trinitarian reference at this point. I know that the Old Testament has very, very little Trinitarian images. But I think we begin to see just a hint of the Trinity in this passage of text. And so we've been introduced to the servant. He is, behold, he stands apart from the idols. He is my servant. He belongs to Yahweh. God upholds him and God takes delight in presenting him to the world and he is empowered by the Spirit to be, which assures us that the task will be completed. That's the picture of the servant. It's a great picture of Christ. But verse 1 concludes with this. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This servant, this one who is my servant, who I uphold, who I delight in, who is filled with the Spirit, his job, his task, will bring justice to the nations. We should probably pause for a moment and consider what this means because after all, you may have noted when I read the text that this idea of justice to the nations was prominent. In fact, mentioned three times in these four verses. We see it here. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In verse 3, he will bring forth justice. And in verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth because it's such a prominent theme and it is really the primary task of the servant, we should probably pause for a moment and ask ourselves and study for just quickly, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's going to bring forth justice? What is justice? Well, at least narrowly speaking, oftentimes when we speak of justice, we speak of righting a wrong or executing judgment. So, we would say it is just when when a judge sentences a criminal and they are forced to either pay restitution or maybe they go away to prison. But we would say justice has been done. A right or a wrong has been righted. Somebody who has been shortchanged has been um, received their recompense or executing judgment. We would say that if somebody is a heinous criminal and they either end up in jail or something like that, we say justice has been done. Judgment has come upon that person and we are satisfied. So, when we speak traditionally about justice, this might be our definition. But as you know, words, all words, have a range of meaning. And when we look at, if we were to apply that definition to the task of the servant, I think we would come up short. I don't think it would really define what the servant's role is, that he is just going to right wrongs. Is that what the... Is that what the servant is going to do? Is he going to simply right wrongs that have been done? 
has to be broader than that. Because even if the servant were to right every wrong, more wrongs would keep getting done. And the servant would have to continually be righting wrongs. Does that make sense? He would, it would be an endless task. And whose wrongs would he right? Just the really bad guys? Or yours? Oh, I don't like that so much. I mean, the, the people who've wronged me, I want those wrongs righted. But what about the wrongs that I've inflicted? Oh, well, now I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I don't want the justice. Just for the really bad people. And by the way, the really bad people are probably everybody but me. So I think most biblical scholars look at this and say, well, that is the meaning of justice. That is a meaning, a narrow meaning of justice. But the, the, the task of the servant must be much broader than that. And as we study this word justice in the Bible, we see a, another broader aspect of the term become unveiled. And we see it being defined as a just order among the nations. In other words, God's justice would be all peoples operating the way God designed. So it is more than doing away with the physical aspects of sins. It is God fixing the world so that it operates the way it's supposed to. Or God fixing you and me so that we operate the way we're supposed to. This is something much broader, something much bigger. It is not just getting criminals and putting them in prison or finding people who have wronged you, even charging them interest. It is, no, I'm going to set about and set the world in a right order. That, the, that we might be able to say on earth as it is in heaven. And the first step, you might be ahead of me a little bit, but the first step, if we are going to set the world, if the, if the servant is going to set the world in a right order, and if he is going to make us the way we're supposed to be, the first step would be to eradicate the very fundamental problem, the most basic issue. The basic issue is we're not right. We're bent. We're crooked. The first problem, the most fundamental problem, is he must eradicate sin. And so justice must begin with salvation. A just order must deal with sin. Otherwise, it's an endless cycle of dealing with injustice and never solving it. But the servant comes to set things the way they're supposed to be. To set the earth and to set people back in the way that God intended them to, do, to be. And this is going to unfold as we move through these servant songs, so you'll just have to come back. Um, or you can listen to them online too, but you should come back. So, I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the, na to the nations. Notice, not just to Israel. It's going to be to the nations. This is a, this is a worldwide campaign that the servant is going to embark upon. 
So, we've been been introduced to the servant and we've been introduced to his task. We know who he is and what he's going to do. Our next question now is how is he going to do it? This might really shock you. Because in this song we learn how the servant accomplishes his task. The servant's method. And so, equally surprising of what he's going to do is how is he going to do it? And I should ask you the question, how would you do it? If you were going to set everything in right order, what would you do? You might think, well, I would probably pass some good laws and I'd make sure that everybody follows God and all of these things. That's not how the servant is going to do it. It's going to be quite a bit different. In fact, Isaiah in his song expresses the method of the servant in the negative. In other words, he's going to say, this is what he's not going to do. He expresses it in what he's not going to do. And listen to this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So we learn what he is not going to do. His method is not going to be aggr- include aggressive or violent activities. That's the realm of earthly kings and empires. They squash people. They put down rebellions. They use military might and strength. They use economic resources. But the servant, he's going to accomplish this justice. He's going to put things back in a completely unexpected way. He's not going to cry aloud in the streets. This has been understood in a couple of different ways. First of all, he will not cry aloud in despair. Some people have understood that he's not going to cry aloud in despair, despite the fact that he um, endures much affliction, as we will see. He does not cry aloud in despair. The second way to understand that is that he will not bring attention to himself. I think this latter um, idea fits better with the context. That is, he will not bring attention to himself. He does not require a PR manager. He does not require a social media strategist. He is not a carnival barker to magnify his excellencies. In fact, Jesus healed people, did great things, and then said, tell nobody. He will not cry. How do you... What kind of method is that? He will not cry aloud. He commanded others to remain silent about his deeds. And this is, I believe, the most fitting understanding when we say he will not cry aloud. He will not get out like a carnival barker. He could have flung himself off the precipice of the temple and made himself known. And everybody would have said, there is the servant! He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He does not cry aloud, but here's another thing. Look how gentle he is. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This is highly figurative language. But it speaks of those who are weak the ones who are discarded and the ones who are useless. A bruised reed, a reed was already a weak um, plant. Okay, yeah, it's a plant. It was already something that is very weak. And a bruised reed was even weaker. He will not even, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a faintly burning, dimming wick, 
he will not square, he will not put out. This is highly figurative language to speak of the weak and the discarded, the useless, the valueless, the nobodies. In other words, he is not going to do any harm to the already broken and to those who are fading away and those who have no strength and those who have no life. He will not destroy them. Scripture interprets Scripture and probably our best understanding of this is to look at Matthew chapter 12. And the reason we want to look at Matthew chapter 12 is because Matthew uses this exact song to describe a very interesting situation. Matthew applies this first servant song to Jesus in a very interesting situation. Jesus is in the synagogue preaching and the Pharisees seek to... uh, to, um, trap him, and they bring to him a man with a withered hand, a broken, useless nobody. Will you heal this man? Jesus says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or do to do harm? And he healed the man. And then he went away from the crowds and he began to heal others. He says, this This was done to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that says, you will indeed hear... Oh, wrong verse. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This bruised reed of a man is brought to him and then he goes and he begins to heal other smoldering wicks. This disfigured man whom Jesus met in Matthew chapter 12 was a bruised reed. And Jesus gave him strength and cured his shriveled hand. The woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus saved her from stoning and forgave her of her sins. Jairus was a bruised reed and he mourned his daughter's death. But Jesus strengthened his faith and raised his daughter from the dead. And the woman with an issue of blood was an outcast. Have nothing to do with anybody. Never again feel the embrace of your loved ones. A bruised reed who believed that Jesus could restore her to health, and he did. The disciple Peter was a bruised reed. He denied our Lord three times. You would think that's the one you cast out. That's the one you abandoned. That's the one you snuff out. But Jesus gently and lovingly renewed him to fellowship after the resurrection over and over and over again in the Gospels. We see Jesus caring for the bruised reeds of the world. Don't think I can continue without asking the question, are you bruised? Are you at the end of your rope? Are you, is the flame burning out? Do you have nothing left? Have you been told that you are damaged goods of no value and of 
complete uselessness. Perhaps you grew up in a family and you were told you're a nothing and a nobody. Perhaps you've been abused and used and discarded as though now just thrown on the garbage heap of life. I want you to know that the task of a servant is to restore and bring salvation and to put you back the way God intended. And He has done it and He will not snuff you out. He does not consider you useless. You are not discarded. You are not useless. And you are valuable to our great God and Savior. This is the song of Advent. Jesus fulfills the servant role. Jesus is the true Israel. Listen to this. Jesus, in spite of his great dignity, the King of ages, the Lord of glory, is the one who would say, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The task of the servant will be done in the most unusual way. Not by promoting himself, but by by taking the broken and the dimmy and restore them and put them back to the way that God had intended. final line in the song says that he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. He will not grow weak in his task. He will not grow faint or discouraged. He will not grow weak in his task. He will persevere until he has succeeded. Please, don't take the previous stanza of this song that he is gent that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench do not mistake his gentleness for weakness he will succeed he will persevere he will accomplish what he came to do so do not mistake his gentleness for weakness there's a great play on words in the hebrew here that he is no weak bruised reed. He is no fading candle. He sustains his work until it is completed. He is no faint candle. In fact, he's the light of the world. He doesn't grow weak. He finishes his task. He accomplishes it through being a servant, but he himself is utterly and completely strong, powerful, and able to do what he was called to do. He sustains his work until it's all completed. And though he is forsaken, and though he is betrayed, and though he is abused, he will complete his task. Finally, we realize that his success is in the power of Yahweh through the Spirit. He will prevail. The final words of the servant while he was hanging on the cross is, it is finished. I did the task. I completed it. 
I finished it. I finished what I was called to do, and it is now done. In gentleness, he cares for the outcasts, and in power, he delivers them from their sin and weakness. He is both gentle and powerful. It is finished. It is done. The servant's role has been completed. I'll close with this. Advent means coming. Advent means arrival. And so I hope that we are able to spend this season in anticipation and in preparation. Because the Advent season comes filled with idols. It comes filled with idols of self and even family and self-righteousness. And when we consider the idols of the age, we need to look to Isaiah chapter 42, 1, Behold my servant, in whom I am well pleased. So as we continue in our time of Advent, one of the things that we want to remind you of a little bit of Advent, and that is Advent, which means arrival, is important whether you're a believer or a non-believer. See, our calendars are dominated by the, are not dominated by the rhythms of redemption but rather they are dominated by the swift current of consumerism and efficiency. The microwave saves us from waiting for soup to simmer on the stove and credit cards redeem us for waiting on a paycheck to make purchases. And this backward extension of the Christian Christmas season Advent liberates us from having to deal with the awkward and dull season of Advent. And so before the last unpurchased Halloween costume makes it back to the warehouse, Halls and malls are decked with plastic holly and crimson ribbons. Thanksgiving provides a pre-Christmas test run on how to cook your turkey and tolerate your relatives. But the primary function of Thanksgiving increasingly seems to be supply a convenient time to gather for that spectacle of consumption and consumer debt called Black Friday. Perhaps because Christmas is about celebration, and celebrations can be leveraged to move products off the shelf. Advent, however, is about waiting. It is about waiting, which contributes little to the gross domestic product. And so in our religious world that has fixated itself on using Jesus to provide seekers with more convenient lives here and now, Advent is an awkward intrusion. Advent links our hearts with those ancient prophets who pined for a long-promised Messiah long before his arrival. In the process, Advent reminds us that we too are waiting. On this side of Good Friday and the resurrection, there is a brokenness in our world that no cart full of Black Friday bargains can fix. And there is a hunger in our souls that no pumpkin custard can fill. And there is a twistedness in our heart that no human hand can touch. The whole creation, Paul declares, has been groaning, longing for redemption. And in Advent, Christians embrace the groaning. We recognize it not as a hopeless whimpering over the paucity of the present moment, but an expectant yearning for the divine banquet that Jesus is preparing for us. In Advent, the church admits that the meaning is in the waiting. 
And what we await is the final advent that is yet to come. And so just as the ancient Israelites awaited the coming of Messiah in the flesh, we await the coming of Messiah in glory. In Advent, believers confess that the infant who drew his first ragged breath has yet come, has yet to come and speak his final word. So what we, one of the things we do in Advent is we light a candle, Advent candles. And Scott and Amber, if you want, you guys can come forward. And why we do this is each time we light a candle, each week we're going to light a candle, this does two things. It reminds us that we're the light of the world. It also reminds us that each week as we get closer and closer to Advent, another candle is lit and, lit, and hence the light grows brighter. As we glow, grow closer to Christmas Day, the light grows brighter and brighter. And folks, I pray that as we go through this Advent season, we will meditate on the things of God and the things of Christ, and his light will grow and become brighter and brighter in us as individuals and in us as a church, and that we would bear that light into our community. So with that, would you stand and let us sing?